over a span of 2,000 years, 40 authors on three different continents and in three different languages penned 66 books, all of which were supernaturally inspired and intricately designed as God's revelation to man. The spoken word of God, living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, recorded and bound just for us. Join us on a journey from Genesis to Revelation, all 66 books, the big book, cover to cover. This is Michael Easley in Context. We are doing this study called The Big Book Cover to Cover, and today we jump right into 1 Kings. My hope as we go through this uh, for you is not just a, a little you know, Sunday school class or whatever you might think of the book, but it's to make it a little less complicated. Uh, people will often say the Bible's a big book, it's a complicated book. It really isn't. It is a little intimidating. Part of that is because our ability to read continues to go down from our education system. We don't read like we used to. We read on a phone. It's pretty hard to read a big Bible on a phone screen. So there's some things we're doing to ourselves. But all that to say, uh, these books are really not that difficult if we learn how. And some of these overviews things hopefully help uh, encourage you in your own Bible reading that you're not lost or discouraged. Or what in the world is this all about? Why do we have these lists of names and so forth and so on? Um, One thing that helps me is to look at the approximate time spans of these books. And I continue to review this as we go through the study. Uh, Judges takes about 350 years to 410 years. And you remember how short a book of a record we have, right? Uh, 1 Samuel is 94 years. 2 Samuel, 40 years. 1 Kings, what we're looking at today, covers 130 years of, of time. And then 2 Kings is about 286 years. And the reason this helps me understand is what did God want his authors to include in these records and these chronicles and these accounts for you and me to understand? And it, maybe your brain isn't like mine, maybe it is, but it helps me understand a lot is going on in this time span. Again, America's going to be what? Is it 249 this year? Is that right? 249 years on July 4th. So you're looking at uh, 2 Kings covers about the lifespan of America. A little tiny book. And think of your own historical knowledge base of what you know about your country and what the Jew would know about his or her home. So just to keep that in in mind as a frame of reference. The other thing is when you read these books, you don't have to have a seminary degree. You're looking for style. You're looking for content. You're looking for simple things like repetition. Those of you who are in Bible study fellowship or um, precept or community Bible study or just a, a Bible study nerd like me, when you're in those programs, you start to look for repetitions, restatements, things that frame, things that open and close. And those devices are so helpful just to observe, observe, observe as you're reading the text. Because it does, it's, it's, for me, there's nothing cooler than seeing something I've never seen before. Because you read it again, oh, wow, I never saw that connection. And I'm going to show you one today that I never saw until I did the overview of First Kings. Um, to give you a little bit more of a bracket around these, I call them first and second books, King uh, Samuel, Kings and Chronicles, let me show you this. It helps a little bit. These aren't, this isn't, you can't synthesize anything in a word, but this is a way of thinking about it. First and second Samuel are biographical. We're looking at the lives of people. First and second kings are narrative. It's a story. And it's an easier book to read, frankly. 
than Chronicles because Chronicles is a theological grid and Chronicles gets lost in the weeds for the average reader. And we'll try to unpack that in the weeks ahead. But again, to look at those. Now, a helpful way, we have how many Gospels? What do we call the first three? Synoptic. Just think of the word similar. They're similar. Mark is the oldest, hardest gospel. Mark was probably one of the original sources. Matthew and Luke draw from that. Luke writes more than the other two. John is the outlier. John is real easy language, but very deep theologically. Each of the synoptics is the same story loosely. It's about the person and work of Jesus Christ, the words and work of Christ, the life of Christ. They approach it differently. They include different things. The miracles aren't in all one gospel. John doesn't even have a, what we would call a, a, a genealogical birth account, but John has some insight into things, the high priestly prayer that we don't get in their gospels. But so when you're reading four gospels, you're going, this isn't redundant. This is a different way, an author that God inspired to compile these books so they make sense. So I want you to think of the first and second books in the Old Testament in a similar way. Uh, it also helps me to get a frame on this. There are 40 kings in Israel's lifespan, 20 in the north, 20 in the south. God likes certain numbers, and there's 40 kings that cover this time span. The book we're going to look at today covers, again, about 130 years, and it's broken into a, a neat Let's just call it a parenthesis. It begins with David's last days, the good king dies, and it ends with Ahab's son's name when a bad king dies. So it's framed with these two juxtapositions. This is how God intended the king, the monarchy to live, and this is how the monarchy in fact lives after the death of Solomon. Um, the first 11 chapters cover 40 years, the last uh, 10 chapters cover 90 years. The first 40 are peaceful in the main. There's some skirmishes and issues, but in the main, it's a wonderful time. It's unbridled prosperity. The last uh, 90 years are horrible because when Solomon goes off the grid, when he dies, everything falls apart. And that again is all part of his big plan. Um, the Nelson Study Bible has a nice synthetic paragraph. It says, in the final analysis, 1 Kings is a story of one people headed down two different paths. It is a story of good kings and bad kings, true prophets and false prophets, and of disobedience and loyalty to God. Most importantly, it is a story of Israel's spiritual odyssey and God's faithfulness to his people. Grace said it pretty well. It's, it's, a, it's a record of these things and how the throne of David will be sustained no matter what mankind does. In a similar fashion, uh, Ken Boa and Bruce Wilkinson, I've referred to this book many times, Talk Through the Bible. Some of you used to get the little monthly Talk Through the Bible uh, booklet. It's not published anymore, but they put it together in a single book called Talk Through the Bible. It's so helpful in these synthetic, how do you get your arm around a book of the Bible? It's not an easy thing. Well, some of these tools are very helpful and talk through. They say the theme of 1 Kings is the welfare of Israel and Judah depended upon the covenant faithfulness of the people and their king. The welfare of Israel and Judah, Israel is in the north, Judah is in the south in the divided kingdom, depended upon their covenant faithfulness of the people and the king. If you do what I tell you to do, I'll bless you. If then... If then, 
if then. That's one thing you can read through 1 Kings. And every time I see an if then, I circle the if and then draw a pencil line connecting the two. If you do this, then that will happen. If you do this, then that will happen. And candidly, it's true today. If we live faithfully, then we can generally anticipate God's going to care for us. If we live sinfully, why would we expect him to come through? Why would we expect him to sustain us if we're choosing to live sinfully? So the if-then conditions are a language of the covenant. Um, well, let's dive into the book um, in chapter 1, and I want to read verses, chapter, excuse me, 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 2. David is dying, and he's going to give his son Solomon some marching orders. I am going the way of all earth. Be strong, therefore, and show yourself a man. Was it Cromwell that said, play the man? I'm not a British literature person. Anyone in British lit? Play the man. It's an interesting phrase historically, and I wonder if, they, if it comes from this passage. Be strong, therefore, and show yourself a man. Uh, so David's on his deathbed. You may remember the backstory. Bathsheba's concerned because they're putting another king in position. She goes to the king, which was not simply, you know, walking in the bedroom. This is the whole uh, process of how you went to see the king. And she and Nathan do this very clever tag team story. And, he, and she goes, you go in and you say this to the king. And then about the time things get exciting, I'm going to come in and bust the door open and I'm going to make a big show of it. So it's like they tag team David. And he's in bed, he's dying, and she goes in and pleads with the king. They're putting another king into place, and it's supposed to be Solomon. And about that time, Nathan busted the door, and he throws himself on the floor. Oh, king, have you heard what they're doing? Well, he's sick. This, this gets him pretty well pretty quick. He gets, sort of sits up in bed, go, whoa, this can't happen. And so David then begins this instruction and charge uh, to fulfill God's promise which is back in 2 Samuel chapter 7. I mentioned it last week. If you're a person who, even if you don't take notes in your Bible, in, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, you should put a big box around there, put an asterisk on the page. This is the Davidic Messianic covenant promise. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. 2 Samuel 7. It's such an important promise because God says to David, there will never lack a man on your throne and it's a double entendre. He's talking about Christ. The immediate application was going to be Solomon. But after Solomon's off, off grid, it all goes to pot. And so he's explaining to him, there's a messianic Davidic covenant that God made in 2 Samuel chapter 13 and 14. Well, these deathbed instructions are interesting because right at the get-go, he tells them about some let's just call it unfinished business. And it's going to bring justice. Justice is a two-edged sword. The psalmist talks about the sword of God's justice. In order to dispense mercy, you have to cut. That's why justice is depicted as a two-edged sword. And we're going to see that, of course, in probably the most famous story about Solomon's uh, wisdom. You're going to cut something, so you're going to have to hurt somebody to bring about justice. You're going to punish the wicked to reward and protect those who were victims. That's the two-edged sword of justice. There's no such thing as uh, everything working out tolerant at the end. Those who are evil and sin and commit injury to others, justice will come. And that's what David is telling him to do. Uh, you got to love this character named Benaniah. Uh, I love Ben and I and Abishai. That tells you a little bit about me. If you're a Bible geek, you know about these guys' stories. Um, basically, Ben and I is a, is a hitman. And he's sanctioned by God and sanctioned by Solomon to deal with this unfinished business. 
And the way the Hebrew is, is uh, rendered, most Bibles fuss with it, but the King James, uh, New American Standard says, he goes and falls upon him. He fell upon him, which is an interesting metaphor for killing a guy. So Ben and I goes out and cleans up. Remember the guy, Shemaiah, who was cursing King David? Remember that story? Okay, never mind. Anyway, so that's one that he's going to take care of. So Ben and I goes out and cleans up the unfinished business that David had Solomon dispatch. Why? When you're coming into an office, there's some unfinished stuff you got to clean up before you can lead. It's true in every organizational change. If you go into a company, if you take a new position, if you're an elected official, if you're over something, you got to clean up some unfinished stuff. It's true in every sector of life, how much more in the kingdom. So he goes in and Benaniah is Solomon's man to go out and do these things. And it's, it's great. It's, your kids would love those, those little stories. Well, after we sort of get this justice thing, unfinished business, then Solomon prays a prayer. It is a remarkable prayer. I want to read part of it in 1 Kings 3, verses 6 to 9. Then Solomon said, in fact, it's on the screen. Let's keep you awake today. Read it with me. Read it with me. Then Solomon said, you have shown great loving kindness to your servant David, my father according as he has walked before you in truth and righteousness and uprightness of heart toward you. And you have reserved for him this great loving kindness that you have given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. Now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in the place of my father David. Yet I am but a little child I do not know how to go out or come in. Your servant is in the midst of your people, which you have chosen, a great people who are too many to be numbered or counted. So give your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, to discern between good and evil, for who is able to judge this great people of yours? What a great prayer. Now, he's not a child, literally like a baby, but he's saying, compared to my father, David, I'm a newbie. I don't know what I don't know. And this, of course, as Grace already mentioned, is what speaks to the heart of God. It's a remarkable prayer. And God's response is even more remarkable. Adonai Elohim are the two words used. Adonai for Lord, Elohim for God. The Lord God says to him in chapter 3, verse 10, It was pleasing in the sight of the Lord that Solomon asked this thing. God said to him, read with me, because you have asked this thing and not asked for yourself long life, nor have you asked riches for yourself, nor have you asked for the life of your enemies, but you've asked for yourself discernment to understand justice. Behold, I have done according to your words. Behold, I have given you a wise and discerning heart so that there has been no one like you before you, nor shall one like you arise after you. I have also given you what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that there will not be any among the kings like you in all your days. If you walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and commandments, as your father David walked, then I will prolong your days." 
a remarkable prayer, a remarkable answer. I mean, we don't read in between there, and I don't like to have too much speculation, but I suspect he was on his face. When he heard God say that to him, wow, you give me wisdom, and you're also going to make me this powerful, wealthy king. Literally, uh, arguably, in the ancient Near East, he was the most powerful, wealthy, wise man on the planet for the 40 years he holds the kingdom. Now, the next story we won't read, but you know the story. It's about the two harlots, and they have a child. And one of them uh, slept, and uh, her child died, sudden infant death, smothered him, whatever. He's dead. And so they're arguing about whose child it is. And these two women come before King Solomon. There's a lot going on in the monarchy for those two harlots to get in front of the king. That's a big, deep story of ancient Near Eastern wonderful lore. But they get in front of him. And you know the story too well. I I love, again, part of uh, banging my head against Hebrew and Greek for almost 40 years now. Um, He he gives the order, he he goes, bring me my sword. And it's translated differently in your Bibles. In Hebrew, it's basically two words, get sword. The Hebrew listener would be going, I'm I'm going to, what did I say justice was? A two-edged sword. I'm I'm going to administer justice right here and now. Now, this story, it, it transcends cultures. It transcends people on the planet. There are very few people on this planet, unless perhaps they're in, in the monotheistic system of Islam, that have never heard this story. Everybody in this room knows this story before we started. And he's going to cut the child in half and give half to each other, each of the moms. And of course, what? The evil, malevolent woman is all ready. Go ahead, cut the child in half which totally exposes her. And the other one's even more exposed. No, no, she'll do anything and everything to save life for her son, even give him away. What is that picture about? I'll do anything and everything to protect my son, even give him away, just don't kill him. And all these messianic threads come through these stories if you stop and pause just a minute. Well, you know the story, the boy's not killed, First Kings 3, um, Verse 28, when all Israel heard of the judgment which the king had handed down, they feared the king, for they saw the wisdom of God was in him to administer justice. So we got this great narrative storyline. He cleans house. He comes into office. The first thing he does on his own initiation is to bring a sword out, and I'm going to render justice right here and now. And people are, they put their hands, there's a phrase in Job, oh, he said, the young men used to cover their mouths when I spoke. It's like, wow. You're supposed to cover your mouth when it's open. Wow, it's amazing. And so Israel is amazed at this wisdom, and it's going to spread like wildfire. Now, it pauses for just a second. What, what is this underscore? This is the kind of king we want. This is what we want when someone goes to court. We want justice. How often, I heard something on the news this morning, I didn't hear enough of it to tell you the full story, but it's a murder that happened 30 years ago at Fort Bragg or something, and they, through DNA, after 30 years, have, have found the, the guilty party. And what, what do we always hear when they interview the family? It, we get closure. Justice was finally served. 
When someone malevolent does something to someone else, we want justice served. It's an immutable fact. We all want this kind of justice in our hearts. Why do you think there's so many iterations of law and order stories and NCIS and NCIS Miami, NCIS Nashville, I mean, all these crazy, why? Because we like to see the bad guy caught and the good guy uh, win, right? It's sewn into the fabric of every person's heart. And we want a king when we stand before the king. Not clever attorneys, not loopholes in the law. We want a king that cuts to the matter. That's wrong. This is right. And that's what we all want in a king. Not a person in this room who hasn't endured injustices, betrayals, loss of finances, you've been fired, you've gone through a messy divorce and been misrepresented. On and on we can go all day. You've lost someone you've loved. You've been through hurt and wound. I want a king to fix this. And if nothing else, that's what the monarch was to sow into our souls. Well, from 1 Kings 3.28, the next verse in chapter 4.1 is very interesting, and it's just a transition, but it's an important phrase. Now Solomon was king over all Israel. Boom, the benchmark has been put. He is now the king over all of God's kingdom. Uh, We read then of this just string of unbridled blessings and unbridled success of Solomon's reign. And Judah and Israel are bustling with people and prosperity and true to his word in chapter 4, verse 29. Now God gave Solomon wisdom and a very great discernment and breadth of mind like the sand that is on the seashore. That's That's a metaphor we've heard back in Genesis 12. You can't count it. And Israel is enjoying this. By chapter 6, we read of the temple complex construction, which is a fabulous story. In chapter 6, 1, we have a timestamp. I really like this. For in the 480th year after the sons of Israel had come out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, he began to build the house of the Lord. And that's about 966 BC, give or take a few years. We talked about that thousand year mark between Abraham and Jesus. So we're still in that, in that sweet spot about that time. It also, this timestamp tells us it took seven years for him to build the temple. As Grace pointed out, he also built himself a palace. I spent, oh, conservatively 12 hours, uh, 10 hours this week looking. I was going to show you pictures of the size and dimensions. Uh, that's not important. Uh, I, I like that kind of stuff. Maybe you don't. But it's, when you go to the city of David, it's not a lot of real estate there. And those of us who have been to Israel understand this. And then he's just coming up a hill to build the temple complex, Herod's complex. It's about not quite three quarters the size of a football field. And Solomon's house is bigger than the temple complex proper. But it's a seven-year project. More interestingly, perhaps, than the intricacies of all the design, which is fascinating, is a guy named Hiram or Horam. It depends on your Bible, whether it used an I or a U to translate the word. This is not Hiram, king of Tyre. That's a different Hiram. It's a common name. This guy is half Jewish and half something else. There was no one in Israel at that time, even it was bustling, who had the knowledge, especially of metallurgy. And so Hiram or Horam is brought in to do this this construction project. Think of him like a Michelangelo on steroids. He's brilliant. In fact, there's a section where he casts these two pillars. We've talked about this before. Trivia tests. What are they called? Yaakim and Boaz. You get the prize. You're slow on a draw, Diane. Uh, You're sleeping. Um, They're two bronze capitals. They're over 34 feet tall and 18 feet in circumference. 
made out of bronze. Uh, there's some study done in ancient Near Eastern literature where they talk about these capitals that Solomon had constructed. They were unequaled on the planet at the time. And there's a long, a long, long story in ancient history about the attempt to make a capital where the, this little village was running out of lumber to burn the lost wax, you know how lost wax works? So if you have a ring and you wanna have a unique ring, you have this special wax and they, they take these little tools and carve it and then you put it in a box of sand and then you pour, uh, you have a frame and you pour the gold or the silver in and the silver or gold dissipate the wax and then the ring fills up that void. That's called lost wax casting. And that's how most of the casting was done in antiquity. Well, you had to have a furnace because fire only gets to a certain point. And to have metal molten, you've got to have wind underneath those fires. Think about this in antiquity. They didn't have a you know, 40,000 BTU thing on their home that could turn on and do a walk on their kitchen. This, they had to build fires and funnel these in through forced air. Well, what Hiram does to build these capitals has never been done before. So to see the grandeur of the Solomonic temple would have been something, but they're 34 feet tall, they're unique in, in circumference, they're majestic, and so he names them. It's the, it, we might say it's the most ornamental part of the temple complex that he builds. Well, again, Solomon's building a home about the same time. They complete the project, and now to sanctify it and get it ready, you got to bring the ark up. And the ark is just down the hill. It says it comes from the city of David. We're not even talking the length of a football field. We're just bringing it up the hill. To where the temple is now residing in Israel. And we read in 1 Kings 8, verse 10. It happened when the priest came from the holy place. So they'd gone in, they'd put it in the Holy of Holies. It's been, I won't bore you with the details, but they've had to sanctify the thing, had to set it apart. All kinds of things had to happen. The priests go in, and of course they can't go in there and live. So it had to have some preemptive way to get the ark in there. And this is the whole storyline. When the priest came in from the holy place, the cloud lift filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. So it's like they put it in there. This is my sanctified imagination, best I can explain it. They put it in there and as they're walking out, this cloud descends and they probably picked up their pace a little bit. And they get out of that complex and the glory of God descends. Epiphanies, the glory of God coming down from heaven, an image we see all the way through the New Testament, even into the book of Revelation. Then Solomon prays a prayer of dedication, which is a worth of about eight sermons in itself in chapter eight. Listen to some of the standouts in this praise. Please listen to the cry and the prayer which your servant prays. When you pray, do you ever say, God, are you listening to me? How do I know you're hearing me? Am I just talking in the air? The ancients had the same questions. God, will you listen to me? Will you hear the petition of your servants? Several times, listen to the prayer, listen to the supplication. Hear in heaven, hear and forgive are tied together. Uh, several if-then petitions. If you do this, then this will happen. If we do this, as you spoke, as you promised, on they go. And then we have the most, by my recollection, and I could be wrong, it's the most extravagant, um, sacrificial worship service ever recorded. Over 144,000 animals are slain and it's a barbecue that doesn't end. Now, you read a number like that and you go, how in the world they, 
did they kill 144,000 animals according to the Levitical law and field dress them and bleed them and gut them and go do it in, a, in the proper way and burn and deal with the ashes? I mean, how did they do this? And that's where just a little careful attention to the context answers a lot of questions. If we back up into the temple furniture, there were 10 tables that Hiram built. And the dimension of those tables lead us to believe they were sacrificial preparation tables. And they were the only thing in the temple that had wheels. If you're going to do a lot of uh, butchering, you're going to have to move that thing around because the soil underneath it is going to be uh, saturated. So you got these 10 altars, if you will, not a burning altar, but a preparation table for these animals. The other thing, as you read in the passage, is this went on for two weeks. Solomon extended it. It was such a great celebration that he said, we're going to continue doing this, not seven days, but 14 days. So you break down the numbers with 10 tables, a number of sacrifices per day for two weeks. It's not that impossible. And by the way, there were thousands of priests in the Aaronic and Levitical order at this time because this was the burgeoning population at that time. Probably never before or after were that many people in Israel under the monarchy, under a king. So a lot is going on behind the scenes there that uh, makes it understandable that the Feast of Tabernacles going for two weeks, this could have been done. It would have still been amazing. And if thousands of people are going up to something, let's just say for our framework, the size of a football field, they're not going to have stadium seating like we do today for an NFL game. So we can envision people coming and going during that festival of two weeks and being there for a few days and then camping out outside the city walls and coming back in like a long party, a celebration to the Lord. There are a lot of lessons from his prayer of dedication, but one that I want to point out is that if you summarize his prayer down as best I can, it's God is a God of his word. God is a God of his word. Um, when Solomon prays, petition, asks, uh, intercedes, gives thanksgiving, acknowledges God, it's all tied back to his word. What you have said, what you have promised. Some of us grew up with the language about the promises of God. I think that language falls flat in our current uh, economy of words. We don't, we don't think about what God's promises are to you and me. Um, God is as good as his word. This is so countercultural to me because right now we have no baseline for authority. We're like judges. Everyone does what is right in his own eyes. I was talking to a, a, a friend this week about the notion about what's true to me. I was talking to a friend who's uh, one of their um, children have decided to live with their boyfriend, girlfriend. And, and he's like, you know, this isn't wise. And uh, we, we're talking about how do you help a child that chooses to do that? Well, they're free agents. You can't make them. You can love them and pray for them, but they know what you think already, right? And uh, he was telling me some of the things he shared with this child of his. And, and the child said, the adult child said to, to, to the father, well, I've talked to the Lord about this and we have an agreement. What do you say to that? We become a horizontal Western Christian mindset that's I, me, my. We make God in our own image. We worship in our own image. God's a prude. He's a Victorian. Nobody believes that. Everybody does what's right in their own eyes. God made man in our image that we should worship him. Man is still making God in man's image to worship in the way we want. That's never going to change. Not happy about it. It's just the way it is. 
But this passage, this whole setup, everything that David went through, the, the immorality, the murder, the census, all that he went through, he repented, God forgave him, because that's the kind of God he is, and says, I'm going to keep a promise I made to you, a non-negotiable promise. There's going to be someone on the throne, and Solomon is the first whiff of what a good king is going to be like. God's word is true. He's as good as his word. He never lies. He can always be depended upon. And that's something we all need to hear. Well, 1 Kings 10 is a pivotal story. It's kind of a happy, sad story because it's about the Queen of Sheba. And the Queen of Sheba comes, and she's a skeptic. She doesn't believe what she's heard. And I'll spare you the the whole story. Uh, But again, in chapter 4, verse 34, we see that people were coming from around the world to see the wisdom of Solomon. Well, chapter 10, we have one. Sheba, the Queen of Sheba, comes to put eyes on this. And it's great expression in chapter 10, verse 7. I did not believe the reports, she said, until I came and my eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told to me. You exceed in wisdom and prosperity the report which I had heard. And she gives him 120 talents of gold. I, I never do this. I, I, I've learned my lesson over and over, but I did it this week. I spent over two hours calculating the gold weight and what it's worth today. I, I never do it because there's so many opinions and everybody changes on it. I will tell you this. A shekel weight, this was 9,000 pounds of gold. You didn't you know, pull that out of your pocket. This was brought in, in in boats and carts. This is a big operation. If nothing else, it gives you a grandeur. This isn't some little woman coming into a little court about this size. She's coming to see the wisest, most powerful, wealthiest king on the planet. And she, oh, by the way, let's bring some gold with us. Four and a half tons, 9,000 pounds of gold. For those of you wondering, some people think it's as much as $300 million in today's gold. I don't know what that means. I gave up after about an hour. This is a waste of time. But chapter 10 is an interesting chapter because we've got two stories about women. The harlots who come for justice and the queen of Sheba who comes for justice. And it frames the approachability of the king. How did two harlots get in front of the king? Maybe a bigger question. Why would a queen travel thousands of miles to come see another king? Because God had prophesied his wisdom would go to the ends of the world. And we're reading his Proverbs today, perhaps. Or you read the book of Ecclesiastes or Song of Solomon. You're still reading what the wisest man on the planet. Of course, not as wise as God, as Jesus, but nevertheless what he wrote. Well, chapter 10 shows this incredible success. And then right on the heels of it, chapter 11, the seeds of destruction are sown in Solomon's kingdom. And it has to do with multiplying horses, collecting chariots, and amassing a lot of women. All things he was prohibited to do as a king. Solomon loved many foreign women. Chapter 11, verse 1. Along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women. From the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel, you shall not associate with them, nor shall they associate with you. For they will surely turn your heart away after their gods. Solomon held fast to these in love. He had 700 wives, princesses, 300 concubines, and his wives turned his heart away. When Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord, his God, as the heart of David his father had been. 
As the chapter continues, he will go after the Ishtora and the gods of Molech. He will offer sacrifices to these gods, uh, Milcom, uh, their detestable idols, and the record will change. Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. The wisest man on the planet, the wealthiest man on the planet, had everything he could possibly want, and now he goes the way of his wives, just like God had warned him and told him. Forty years in the first ten chapters, great, it's all going swimmingly, and in no time flat, it all falls apart, and we then have 90 years in the last 10 chapters. We're introduced to two characters, Rehoboam and Jeroboam. They wreck havoc on everything, and they're also a great study in and of themselves. Rehoboam, is a, is, is, he becomes king, and two phrases just to give you a synopsis of who he is. He forsook the counsel and advice of the elders and did not listen to the people. Twice we read both those phrases. Uh, you think my father was tough? I'm going to be tougher, was the main story. He wouldn't listen to the people. He wouldn't listen to the elders. Jeroboam then becomes king over Israel, and there's a little bit of tension back and forth. But Jeroboam's no better. He sets up altars in Bethel and Dan. Some of us have been to Dan. We go to Tel Dan. We go up to the north part of the Tel, and we show you an area that's in rock, and they have an extruded aluminum frame of an altar. It's not, I'm not 100% sure, I'm say 75, 80% sure, that was the footprint of where uh, Jeroboam had built the, the temple complex for them to worship. Because he didn't want them going all the way down to Jerusalem and giving their money and their livestock and sheep down there to worship God. He wanted to keep, in, let's say within his, you know, we don't want them to go spend their money in Davidson County, we want them to stay in Williams County. We want them to keep them here. And that's exactly what he accomplished. And both those altars were false altars. From then on, we get this chilling phrase that's attached to Jeroboam's name. He made Israel sin. And we see it 20 times in First and Second Kings. He made Israel sin. And then we pick up this other gnarly phrase, the sins of Jeroboam, some 14 times. And then about 30 times, we begin to read the, the cascade of this. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. And that covers not just Jeroboam, but the kings that would follow him in the divided kingdom. So Solomon judges rightly. And before long, as soon as he quits judging effectively, leadership abhors a vacuum. And Jeroboam and Rehoboam begin this thing, and they're both unmitigated disasters. In the meantime, as we continue the book, the story gets worse. We're introduced to two colorful characters, Ahab and Jezebel. Jezebel is such a lovely woman. By the way, the only thing you can ever name Jezebel in this life is a cat. <laughs> I give you permission. Uh, we're introduced to Elijah as well. Elijah is the voice of God. And Elijah comes along and he's going to deal with Ahab and Jezebel. And when we're at on Tell Dan, this is the story that we look at when we're up there. We talk about what happened with Elijah and, and the, the two characters. Um, and that's it's a long, digressive story. But at the end of the day, um, Jezebel is like the most evil woman. Do you see what the narrative is telling us? There were two women that wanted justice. There was a woman that came to see and now an evil woman undoes it. And it's not like a, a disparaging about women. It's what the narrative, how it's shaping the story about justice. Ahab should have been the leader in that relationship. But it's his wife that's telling him what to do. And she's corrupt and evil. And he's a sniveling idiot. But anyway, just my opinion. Um, the last two verses of the book summarize Ahab's life in his son Ahaziah. Um, chapter 22, verses 52 and 53. 
He did evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father and in the way of his mother and in the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who caused Israel to sin. So he served Baal and worshiped him and provoked the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger according to all that his father had done. Four lessons. Number one, people cannot lead with power unless submitted to a greater power. No one can lead with power unless you're submissive to someone with more power. And this is the problem with uh, whether it's your solo company or you're the boss or you're the primary investor or whatever it is you've, you, you've worked your way up to. If you don't have someone to whom you're accountable, someone to whom you're submissive, it's, it's a problem. Um, power corrupts. And the only way we keep power from corrupting is we're submitted to some other power. Secondly, individually, we all want to be a king. You may not say it, but we all played king of the hill. We all want to be first. We all want to be the one that picks the team. We all want to be seated at the better table. We all want to be parked up close. I do. You ever do that when you pull in the parking lot and someone backs out and you go, God answered my un, un, unrequested prayer, and you pull in the thing. I want to park up front. Um, it's an interesting baseline. Somewhere we twist our passions, our doctrine, our emotions into this idea we're important. Third, in God's great kindness, the perfect king is patient. He's patient, he's long suffering, he's gentle. He is kind when we sin. He always forgives us when we ask, which is why David was called a man of God's own heart, right? And last, every historical throne lies in ruin. There's only one throne, the one in heaven, that will always rule well. Every human organization is corrupt. At some point, it all falls apart. At some point, Corruption enters in and dismantles it, even with David, even with Solomon, even with Asa, and that kings will look at in the days to come. Michael Easley in Context is fully funded from donations by our listeners. If you're a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation on our website? You can find us on michaelincontext.com. In Context is engineered by Chad Cates, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Tycho, Chad Cates, and Blair Masters.